Hello, this is Pat from the True Fiction Podcast. Just wanted to ask a favor. We love creating this content for all of you, and I hope you're enjoying the content we are creating. And if you are enjoying it, why not show it by buying me a coffee? I know we're pretty far away from some of you, so we've made it easy for you to buy me a coffee and show the support for the show. Just go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash truefiction, one word, and then choose how much you'd like to give to support the show. That would mean a lot to us, and that way you're ensuring that we'll keep putting out great content. Okay, that's about it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Let's talk to interesting people. Let's talk about the process of seeing things differently. Let's talk about the craft of molding truth and fiction together to arrive at something new and exciting. And let's have fun while doing it. Welcome to the True Fiction Podcast. Welcome to True Fiction, the podcast that talks to amazingly creative individuals and finds out where all that creativity comes from. I'm your host, Patrick Boggs. Across the desk from me is my co-pilot for this journey, Norbert Yates. Hey, Norbert, how's it going tonight? Buckled in, ready to go. Oh, awesome. And as well, you should be, because tonight we've got a really amazing show. Tonight we'll be talking to a gentleman who is an actor, director, playwright, lecturer, among other things. He has written 22 plays and garnered multiple theatrical awards. He has been in an amazing number of television shows and feature films that he has performed in, directed, and or produced. He also starred for 10 years as Isaac Washington in the hit series, The Love Boat. True Fiction welcomes our very special guest, Ted Lange. Ted, how's it going? Patrick, very good. How are you, young man? I'm doing awesome. I'm here talking to Isaac. And, yes, you are. And much more. Yeah. That was a role that really shot you into the face of the world, but... You know, there's so much, I'm, you know, reading up on you, there's so much. You're, every time I read something about you, I'm blown away. Oh, thank you. For instance. I hope that's good. I, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Blown away. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. being in something historic is always, is always amazing that, that you're part of history. And I found out that you were also uh, one of the original members of uh, Hair. The, the musical. Yes. Yeah. Well, not an original member. What I did was. Oh, the I original did, run. Yes, and I joined the first national touring company. I was in Los Angeles. I auditioned about five times for the musical, and then uh, they wanted to put together a tour. So they asked me, they called me up, and they said, can you travel? And uh, I was living with my father, so I didn't have to worry about, you know, skipping out on the rent. And I said, yeah, I can I can travel, and... Uh, so they flew me to Vegas and they took the cast of Vegas and they put together a road show. And that was, and then we ended up, I ended up in New York. That's how I got to New York. I traveled uh, on the tour for a year. And at the end of the year, they uh, flew me into New York and I worked in New York. And that's how I got on Broadway was doing hair. That What yeah. a way to start. Uh, I know, yeah. I know that wasn't your first role, of course. No, but it was, uh, it was very, very momentous in that it was at that particular time. It was kind of like Hamilton is now, in that it was moving. You know, there were no, there was no rock and roll musicals on Broadway. So, you know, it was ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. 
And uh, that was that was an his, historic an event, and I was just very lucky to be a part of that. Well, you know that it was such a historic event, and uh, the crossover between uh, Broadway music and then popular music. Uh, I listened to Hair on. I listened to that music. You know, growing up, those were hit songs from that. That uh, yeah, well, a lot of pop artists, Fifth Dimension, uh, the Cow Sales, everybody was doing music from that musical and turning it into rock and roll hits. So yeah, it was a, it was a big deal at the time. Let's go back a little bit. You were in an adaption of Romeo and Juliet in 1967, where Romeo's family was black and Juliet's was white. Then you had a you wrote a prequel to Othello, which yeah. Uh, yeah, it wasn't right after that, but no, no, uh, no, no. That was like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like uh, thirty years, something like that. But um, you know, the interesting thing is when I got into Shakespeare, I was in the ninth grade. I was fourteen years old. I did Macbeth in junior high school. Then I went to high school. We did it again, uh, Macbeth, and we did it with an integrated cast. We did it with um, jazz music. underneath the soliloquies and uh we had pop art it was very popular back then this is the 60s we had a set that was made like pop art and we had multiracial casting in high school then i graduated and i got into this shakespeare company that wanted to approach shakespeare from a more relevant point of view so they did romeo and juliet black white and so I've always approached Shakespeare not as a uh, contemporary, by-the-book kind of a thing, but I've always dealt with it in, in a kind of a fashion in which you would explore options in Shakespeare. And one of the things I did, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a play years ago that a guy wrote about Hamlet and he didn't deal with Hamlet as the lead. He dealt with two characters in Hamlet's play, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Absolutely. And the play was called Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And it's the same guy that wrote uh, Shakespeare in Love, Tom Stoppard. I didn't know that. Or he was one of the writers. I went, as a kid, as a teenager, I went and saw Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And I was like, wow, what a fantastic idea to approach the play from a whole different point of view, you know, so that by the time I wanted to do uh, The Cause My Soul, a prequel to Othello, all I was doing was approaching Othello from another point of view and exploring the possibilities. But it's all rooted, just like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, it's all rooted in the text of Hamlet, in my case, Othello, it's all rooted in there, but you just do a spin on it. And uh, it turned out really well. We, we did this in 2017 on Shakespeare's birthday, and it also won uh, Best Play of 2017 from the NAACP Theater Awards. So it was a very fulfilling experience. That's awesome. So, Ted, when you the play, your first inter, real introduction into Shakespeare, or was you into it before that? No, my first introduction was in the ninth grade. I'm 14. I'm sitting in the back of the class. I'm cracking jokes on the teacher. Teacher's not happy about that. So we did a play called A Christmas Carol, and they cast me as Ebenezer Scrooge. 
Okay, that was my first real venture in the theater. 14, I do Ebenezer Scrooge. Then the teacher comes to me after that production is over and he says, hey, Ted, I want to do Macbeth, Shakespeare. And I go, wow, really? He goes, yeah, and I want you to be Macbeth. And I go, wow, really? (laughs) He goes, yeah, except I don't want you talking in my classroom and making all these jokes (laughs) you make all the time. And if you do... If you continue to do it, I'm going to give the part of Macbeth to uh, Donald Germany over there. <laughs> and they go, no, not Donald Germany. He goes, yeah, because he's real good in my class and you're not. <laughs> so for about six months, I couldn't crack any jokes in his class. And uh, he let me play Macbeth. And uh, we had a sword fight. We had the witches. It was, it was really the most fun. And so that was my introduction to Shakespeare. Well, wow. 14, is, is this your first foray into acting or is, did was you doing stuff before that? No, no. I mean, I did something in like the fifth grade. I did a little piece, but it was, you know, no, my real initiation was Ebenezer Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, because that's a whole play. You know, it's not like a 10 minute sketch or a 10 minute presentation for, you know, Christmas songs or anything like that. No, this was a part with an arc, a beginning, a middle, and an end. And uh, so, yeah, that was my first introduction to uh, being in theater. And, of course, I got bitten by the bug. After I did those two plays, that was it. I was done. I mean, uh, you know, I was supposed to take uh, auto shop in the 10th grade when I graduated, and I and I accidentally ended up, I was walking around campus and uh, I opened up this door and I heard a voice say, close the damn door. And so I closed the door, but I was on the inside and it was our theater, our high school theater. I looked up on the stage and they were doing a a scene from a play. And so I went to my counselor and I said, "Uh, I want to be in drama. He said, well, you can take drama your last year, your ninth grade year. I said, no, 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 no. I want it now. He said, but we've got you in auto shop. (laughs) And back then, the the highest thing you as a black student you could aspire to be was an auto mechanic. And so they, they're saying, well, we want to make sure you'll be able to, you know, find a job and, you know, take auto. I said, nope. I want to take drama. So uh, they switched my classes. I took drama. And as it turned out, you had a whole year of academics in drama. In other words, you read plays, you studied performances, you listened to plays on record. You know, you didn't do any real acting. You might do a scene or two in class, but it's a (laughs) scene. It wasn't a whole play. So it was a good thing that I changed because the way the curriculum was set up is I wouldn't have been able to do what I wanted to do, which was not till the second year. And uh, in the second year, that's when I did uh, Macbeth again. You know, uh, sometimes you have to know what you want and go for what you want. And damn what anybody else says. You know, like I told my dad, I said, Dad, uh, um, uh, my dad was an actor in the 1950s. And I told my dad, I said, listen, uh, I think I'm going to be an actor. And he says, oh, okay. Uh, so listen, what you should do is you should get your college degree and get it in teaching. And that way you'll have something to fall back on. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. 
And he said, what are you talking about? You're not going to do that. How are you going to make a living? I said, I'm going to try to do it in the theater, in movies and in television. He said, no, no, you can't do that. You have to get a teaching credential. And then that way you'll have something to fall back on. And I told my dad, I said, dad, if I have it to fall back on, I'll fall back on it. <laughs> you know, I won't try as hard. And, and that actually came to fruition. There was a couple of times when I didn't have no money and I had to use my ingenuity on how to get through uh, some circumstances, you know. And uh, years later, my father said, hey, uh, son, I met this guy. He says he wants to be a writer, but he's not serious. I said, why do you say that, Dad? He said, because he's working with me at Sears. If he was a real writer, he'd be writing. But he fell back on the fact that he worked at Sears. Wow. And so I listened. I said, you're saying that he's using what he'd fall back? He goes, yeah, well, I, I'll give you that. <laughs> you know, I'll give you that. So, yeah. So, so, Ted, when you, obviously, you started out early being in front of people and doing drama. Have you found that through the, I mean, first of all, were you nervous when you, you first got on stage? And by the time you got through that as a high schooler, by the time you went into a more professional uh, route that it took the anxiety away? Do you always have anxiety before you get on stage? How does that work? About as anxious as I am right now. You see how comfortable I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to you like I know you. And that's the way I was on stage. You know, once I was on, I, you have to imagine some kid that's like 16 years old. He walks out on stage and all the people that didn't want to listen to him have to listen to him now because I got lines. And then if I had jokes, you know, I would work, I would work the situation because I, I like being funny. And uh, so, no, I didn't have any anxiety. And that's why I knew I wanted to, to be in theater and be an actor. And then eventually I became a director and then I became a writer. But no, I didn't have anxiety like that. I, I Maybe once or twice I might be in a situation where I might get a little nervous but that was unusual, you know? It was unusual for me to get nervous. It was perfectly uh, logical for me uh, not to be nervous and to be open and stream of consciousness or whatever we were doing. You know, I like standing in front of people. I learned how to talk to people, you know, both in front of the camera and off, you know, and on stage. Um, so I didn't have that issue. I mean, I did a play once. I was doing um, Henry the Sixth Part Two in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and the woman that played my queen was a woman named Lucranche. What was Lucranche's last name? I can't remember. She had a French name, Lucranche Duran. Lucranche Duran, and she would throw up in the bathroom before every performance. Whoa. And I go, wow, what, what is the point? I mean, she was a beautiful actress, but she got so anxiety ridden that before every show, she ran into the bathroom and threw up. And I go, man, are you having any fun? <laughs> 
you know, what is this? Why did you choose this? Right. And you're going to throw up every time you had to walk out on stage. Yes, everybody has their method, I guess. I <laughs> yeah, know. you know, those weren't my issues. With Clanche Durant, I haven't said that name in years. I remember Larry Bird said that before every game, he was anxious up until the time that the game started. And once the game started, all that anxiety was gone. And I, I'm fascinated by the fact that you haven't had uh, any anxiety. Most of the people we've talked to had at least before they get on stage, they get a little bit of, you know, adrenaline or, or something going, but you're totally well, relaxed. You, you know, part of it is the director. If the director guides you and gives you confidence in the role, you got to have confidence in the role. I mean, I've done some things where I should have been anxiety filled because the role <laughs> Went into the dumper, you know, but then got an older actor said, <laughs> what are you going to do, you know? But most of the time, uh, if you've got a good director, they're going to guide you. They're going to show you where the moments are, where the beats are. And then you're rehearsing for six weeks, five weeks, four weeks to you get it under your belt. And then once you get it under your belt and you're working with the other actors on stage, you know, hopefully... You have enough confidence in what you're doing and you're relaxed enough to know you're, you're not thinking about the audience as much as you are thinking about how to achieve the emotional moments of the character, you know, now, uh, and then, and, and particularly in comedy, I mean, in comedy, you can't walk out there with a whole lot of anxiety. I mean, you just, how are you going to be funny? You know? So, um, that was never my issue uh, as far as uh, being an actor on stage. And then and particularly once, you know, what I, what I do is I, like I did Driving Miss Daisy and we, I did a tour. I did the B tour. Wow. The A tour was done by Brock Peters. I did the B tour. But what I would do is I would measure the laughs. So I knew where the first laugh was supposed to come. Now, if the first laugh came and it was a soft laugh, then I knew I had to work harder. If the first laugh was a strong laugh, then I knew I'm sailing, you know, and I could <laughs> lean back, relax, because I had a good audience, you know? So that's what I did. So, But that's craftsmanship. That goes back to uh, the learning the craft of being a thespian. So once I learned the craft, okay, once I learned, okay, here's where the, the first laugh is. Did I get it? Here's where the next laugh is. So I'm listening, and how I'm getting my laugh is determining my performance. Well, that's business. I'm getting down to business. I don't have time to, to be uh, uh, melodramatic or to be so self-involved that I can't hear what they paid their money for. They paid their money to see this character come to life. And I better bring it. So I'm not uh, necessarily anxious uh, because theoretically, like uh, for Driving Miss Daisy, we had Charles Nelson Riley as the director. He was fabulous. Wow. What a wonderful director. And so by the time I hit that stage opening night, we're rocking and rolling because Charles knows what he's doing. He gives you the confidence to go out there and hit a home run. And if you hit a home run, 
then you know you're doing all right. Now you're trying not to get base hits. You're trying to hit a home run, <laughs> right. you know? So that, that all comes in with, okay, you don't push a joke, you know? Yeah. And, and this is craft of being around the business a long time. You don't, you know, you don't lean on a joke if you don't have to, you underplay this joke, you you know, you strengthen this other joke, you bounce off your, your, your fellow actor, you listen for the beat. And when the laugh rises just as it crests you say you're lying that's the stuff i am doing you know so i don't i'm not out there you know having anxiety i can't i can't i went, I went out there to do a job you know sometimes you know sports is a different thing sports is you don't know where it's going now that'll give anxiety <laughs> if you're supposed to hit the three pointer and you can't hit it. Yeah, that'll get. I can understand that. But theater, you know where this is going. You know where it's supposed to go. I heard a story about Bill Russell that uh, the coach talked about how when they were losing, he'd call everybody into the locker room, and he would, you know chew out the athletes and tell them they got to get in there, they got to block, they got to do this, they got to do that as a basketball player. And then he said one time we he did that all of that and they ran out on the court and he realized that he didn't make Bill Russell throw up. So he called everybody back into the locker room again. <laughs> then he leaned on Bill Russell. <laughs> he leaned on him so hard, Bill Russell jumped up ran into the bathroom and threw up. And then, of course, he went out and played magnificent basketball. But that's what he had to do. That's athleticism. That's the, that's the game. You don't know where that's going. I know where I'm supposed to go. You know what I mean? I'm driving this car, and I better stop at the light, and I better speed up once the light turns green. You know what I mean? So it's two different kinds of uh, 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 games going on here, you know? Well, you also, don't you have, don't you have the unpredictability of your audience plus the unpredictability of the people that you're playing with? Or do, as most of the people that you've worked with, been able to play off of what, because it was what you was telling me about these subtle things that you have worked through and, and mastered your craft. You know these cues how to, how to punch up something or take away. My guess, though, that not everyone you get to work with is at your level. And how do you, I mean, does, there's some, I would think there'd be some unpredictability about that. Well, the, the, the only thing is that someone, you've rehearsed this. There shouldn't be anything unpredictable, but there are those actors that will change, change up on you. And as far as the unpredictability of the audience, that's what I'm measuring by the size of the laugh on the first laugh. And then I am, I am then judging how much I've got to work to continue on in the first act. But yeah, I, I did a play once where, unpredictable, I did a play once where the director's wife, now the director was an old guy, older guy named Ron Milner. He's a playwright. You can look him up. Your fans can look him up. Ron Milner, M-I-L-N-E-R. And uh, he married this young woman. He was about 50. She was about 30. So naturally, she felt she owned the world because she's in the play and her husband's directing the play and she can do whatever the hell she wants. Well, we were on stage. I was with uh, Kim Fields. You know Kim Fields? Absolutely. Tootie. And her mother, Chip Fields. 
And we were doing a play called One Monkey Don't Stop No Show. Now, this goes to unpredictability, all right? Uh, so we're doing a play. I'm on the stage with Kim and Chip, my daughter and my wife, and then I had a guy playing my son. And there's supposed to be a knock at the door, right? No knock. We gave the cue. No knock. <laughs> so we did a little something. Dah, dah, dah. We gave the cue again. No knock. <laughs> so, all right, that's unpredictable. This girl is not where she's supposed to be. I'm not surprised because she is full of herself, okay? <laughs> but Kim Fields says, I think I'm going to go in the kitchen and make some cookies. So she <laughs> walks off the stage because she don't want to ad lib. Then Chip <laughs> Fields, her mother in real life, and her mother in the play says, uh, you know what? I'm going to help you make those cookies. <laughs> so she walks off stage. So now it's just me and the kid playing my son. We're the only one on stage. Now, he said, boy, I sure would like some cookies. <laughs> so he starts to leave, and I grab his arm, and I said, no, son, I want to ask you a couple of questions. So I sit him down on the couch, and what we did was we reviewed stuff that had happened earlier in the first act without giving away what's going to come when the girl enters in, you know? Wow. But that's the sh stuff I like. <laughs> you know what I mean? I love it. Because they were going to walk off the stage. We Just me on the stage. Or I was gonna, we were going to both walk off the stage. And it would be an empty stage. And the audience would know something's wrong. No, the trick is not to let the audience know that something is wrong. So I said, and I said, so tell me about this girl you like. Is she, <laughs> does she have a job? Oh, yeah, dad, she works at it. So he's, he's going to, he, you can see him sweating, man. <laughs> when I'm asking him stuff, he has the answers to, you know? So, yeah. I mean, that stuff happens, but if you know your character, if you know the situation that you're supposed to be in, you know, you can, you can handle it. You can deal with it. I did, I did a Shakespeare play where I was standing up on a tower. I was playing the King Henry VI. I told you about this early with Le Conche Durant. Oh, yeah. And so... This guy was supposed to come on and was a message. He, a messenger is supposed to come on and give me a message that, you know, they're the, uh, the rebels are at the gate, you know? And so we're standing on this tower. There's no one downstage center stage. We're on the side up on a tower. This guy was supposed to come in. He didn't come in. So one of the, uh, uh, one of the King's, you know, helpers says, Chancellor Hey, sire. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sire, um, what should we do? And everyone, I was like six people up on this platform, all turn and look at me. And I'm looking around, I'm looking around, they're all looking at me. And I said, It depends what news from York. So I'm trying to be iambic pentameter. <laughs> so one of the guys runs on stage and says Basically, uh, sire, sire, I come with news. The rebels are at the gate. And so, 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 so now we're back on track. Okay. Now, and we, so we play the scene back on track, blah, 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 blah. At the end of that, the real messenger that's supposed to get comes on <laughs> to say the rebels are at the gate. And I said, uh, lock him up. <laughs> you know, we went on with the play, man. So you know, I mean, 
play for six weeks and then something goes wrong, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of fun, you know, um, figuring out, you know, how to solve the problems. It, you're, you're thinking, you know, and if you do a real long run, like six months or something, then sometimes you kind of beg for stuff to happen, you know. <laughs> you know, but no, uh, uh, my, I'm one of those guys that um, didn't get nervous as long as uh, I know where I am and what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm, I'm usually pretty good to go. I'm pretty good to go. I noticed that uh, you directed this really cool one-man show, Satchmo at the Waldorf, starring L. Peter. L. Peter Callender, yes. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing story. It's about Louis Armstrong. His last performance was at the Waldorf Astoria in New York. He, at the end of his life, he he died actually six months later, right after the uh, end of this performance. And what it is, is it's this one-man show with Satchmo talking about his life as a jazz musician. And L. Peter Callender is absolutely brilliant in this role because not only does he play Satchmo, but he plays the uh, manager of Louis Armstrong, and he plays Miles Davis. And you can, you know exactly who is talking when this guy does that, you know? And uh, he and I, uh, we always say we're brothers from another mother because he and I just, uh, we clicked. And But again, it goes to, you know, he's a Shakespearean actor. We're on the same page a lot of ways. He's been around a long time. I've been around a long time, known him for 30 years. And all of that comes in the play when you're doing the play. So I hope that your listeners will go to AmericanStage.org and find um, Satchmo at the Waldorf if they really want to see some fun things. I directed it, and and what I did was we Zoomed, I Zoom directed it. So basically I call it pajama directing. In other words, they were in Florida, and I was here in L.A., and because of COVID, I ain't going nowhere. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm in the danger zone. So Peter said, would you direct me? I said, well, where is it? He says, it's in Florida. I said, Peter, I'm not going to Florida. He said, no, 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 no. We can do it on Zoom. And so that's what they did is they got these cameras, and I would go on Zoom 8 o'clock in the morning in my pajamas, cup of coffee, and I could see the lens. So I, there were two lenses. And so then I would say, okay, you know, record this, push that one in closer, da-da-da-da, give me a frame, frame out this or frame in this, whatever it was. And I directed the piece, and they recorded it, and now it's streaming on uh, their website, American Stage. And um, what's really fun about it is because although it is a stage show, I come from cinema because I went to the American Film Institute. So I say this is kind of a hybrid between um, stage and film because I'm using certain film technique to tell the story that normally I don't think they would know because they don't know how to use the lens. And I use the lens in such a way that I'm telling the story. You know, like, for instance, uh, uh, there's a scene where Satchmo manager Joe Glazer has to sign over his contract to some gangsters you know and the gangsters had a, an attorney that represented them named Sidney Korshak so usually when you're doing it you're just 
The lighting stays the same. He does Glazer, and then he flips and does uh, Korshak. What I did was, because Korshak is a bad guy, when he does Korshak, I put him in darkness. So you just see this ominous shadow in the dark saying, yeah, sign over the contract, Joe. And then when he's Joe, he leans into the light and he says, well, I had to sign over the contract and I knew Louie wasn't going to like it. But, you know, so I use some elements that are film elements to tell the stage show. And that's kind of what's fun when you see it is I'm doing little things, little tricks, you know, here and there that hopefully keep you engaged in the presentation. You know, I think that's running. Excuse me. I know it's been held over. Yeah, it's held over to March 7th, which is a Sunday. So you can still go see it. Yes. And I would I, I would just reiterate what you're saying. Uh, I, I don't know if people understand how groundbreaking this is and basically what you did. And like you said, the hybrid is that's really amazing if you really think about what we're doing. And I'm wondering, would this have even happened if we didn't have COVID? No, no, never would have happened. Yeah. Never would have. And, and you know, I did a, a another piece where I was in LA, the actor was in New Jersey, the cameraman was in New Jersey, but the cinematographer was in London <laughs> and the wild. set designer was in Paris. And we shot this thing. Now we're all there at the same time, but it's like, you know. 8 a.m. where I am, 11 a.m. in New York, and then whatever the times are. But we're all together at the same time, you know, shooting. Never would have happened without COVID. So, you know, technically we've advanced to the point now where, you know, I can, I can sit in my home, you know, and uh, do some directing, do some stage directing. I directed, first I directed him as a play over Zoom. In other words, two weeks before we shot it, or maybe it was three weeks, three weeks before we shot it, I directed Peter Callender, and he was in San Francisco, and I was in L.A. And I said, okay, put a table over there on the on your left, put a chair, like a big sitting chair there on your right. up in the, And so I set up, I knew what the design of the set was going to be, so I just rehearsed it. He turned on his computer, did a wide-angle shot, and we just work rehearsing it as a play. And then when we got to the set to shoot it, he already knew where he was supposed to go. And when he was sitting down at the mirror and I'd say, okay, look in camera one. And, uh, and instead of speaking into the mirror, just speaking to camera one and da, 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 da. So we worked it out logistically and it was a, it was a fun challenge. Your blocking is basically like film blocking there. Is that? Is yes, that what it absolutely. Is? It was film blocking. It was film blocking, and then you you uh, you know you tighten it up when you're doing it on camera. So I already knew where my close-ups were going to be, where where it was going to be a longer shot, and, and that sort of and the movement of the camera. You know, I knew that already. This is a great. This would be great, uh, Satchmo at the Waldorf. Uh, this would be great for uh, you know get your your family members together, gather around the high you know the high def TV and and put that on. You know. Uh, you know, pause it when you need to get some popcorn to use the bathroom. This is yeah. This is the well, way to do it. 
It's a fascinating story about Louis Armstrong. And for those of you that don't know, if you ever heard uh, this gravelly voice sing, Hello, Dolly, that's Louis Armstrong. And as a matter of fact, uh, when I was doing Love Boat, John Aston, you know who John Aston sure. is? yeah. From Adam's family? John Aston and I, we connected. We were in <laughs> Egypt. We were in Cairo, Egypt. And so he and I would hang out together. And so he told me he when he was first starting out, he did um, Mac the Knife. Uh, what is it? Three Penny Opera. He did Three Penny Opera with the original cast. He was a young man, but it had a lot of Lenya in it. Who, if for those of you that don't know a lot of Lenya, go see James Bond's From Russia with Love. And she is the Russian agent that has the knife in her shoes. That's a lot of Lenya. Okay. A <laughs> lot of Lenya was in a off-Broadway production of Three Penny Opera. Her husband was one of the writers, Kurt Vile, and they sang a song called Mac the Knife in this production. Oh, the shark bites with its teeth. Then Louis Armstrong got a hold of it, and he swung it, man. This guy, oh, the shark bites. <laughs> With his team, you know? So he told me, he says, I was there when Lotta Lenya discovered that Louis Armstrong had sung Mac the Knife. And he says, he says, Lottie, he even mentions your name in the song. And so if you go back and you listen to it, you'll hear him jazz up the version of, of Mac the Knife and that's the kind of stuff we talk about in the play is how he approached, you know, how he approached stuff in his own way. He said, because he could take any song. And 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 one of the things that is acknowledged uh, over the years, because he influenced Bing Crosby. Bing Crosby developed scat singing because he was friends with Louis, and Louis taught him. Louis Armstrong taught Bing Crosby how to scat sing. Louis Armstrong took Mac the Knife and turned it into a whole nother thing. And back then in the 50s, late 50s, early 60s, they would have a black entertainer's song covered. By that, I mean they'd get a white singer to sing the song that the black person made popular. So in this particular case, Mac the Knife was Bobby Darren. And he's saying, if you ever hear Bobby Darren sing Mac the Knife, note for note, word for word, it's Louis Armstrong. Wow. Yeah, and Bobby Darren didn't want to do it. He says, I, I don't want to cover. I don't want to cover. I want to do my own version. They go, no, you're going you're to cover this, and if you cover this, you'll have a hit. And he did. That's what he did. Yeah. That's funny because, you know, as 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 we all know, this happens. I, I'm really familiar with the uh, Bobby Darren version. So Yeah. Well, you're really listening to Louis Armstrong. Yeah, that's cool, though. And you just didn't know it. <laughs> Nobody knew it because, no. you know, they they – the, you know, they kept uh, uh, black people out of the mainstream music uh, in what they call race music, okay? And then they changed the term race music to rhythm and blues because they wanted to cross over. They wanted to to get a broader audience. But, that yeah, that's what that's what Bobby Darren did. I would think to, for Bobby Darren, that would be – I think for any artist, though, like you covering something and not making it your own, on some level, that's got to – 
eat at you a little bit. At least it would. Yeah, be Yeah, that's me. why he said I don't want to do it. Absolutely. You can find you can find him in interviews where he said, "Well, you know, I didn't really want to because they everyone knew it was Satchmo. Everyone knew it was Satchmo, and so he's trying to say, yeah, you know, I think I'm a strong enough entertainer.' But he was just breaking in. See, so he didn't have much choice because the boys right. told him to cover the song, and so he covered the song. But yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, he didn't want to. He didn't want to do that because I've talked to entertainers. I was talking to Tony Orlando. You know who that is, Tony sure. Orlando. Yeah, okay. Don. So I was in Vegas. Kind of yellow ribbon. Doing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was doing a a, a gig in um, Vegas, and I was there with Tony Orlando, and I. And I said, who's the greatest entertainer? He said, he said I'm going to tell you who. And I've seen this. So I'm going to tell you who the greatest entertainer is. He said, Bobby Darren is the greatest entertainer. And he says, as a matter of fact, Ted, you can ask Sammy Davis Jr. if he would like to follow Bobby Darren. Wow. <laughs> and, and he told him, Sammy, he said, I don't, I'll follow anybody, but I won't follow Bobby Darren. Wow. You know, so Bobby Darren was a, 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 a strong live performer you know and so he had his own confidence you know uh uh bobby darren is responsible for giving wayne newton style you know who wayne newton sure right sure okay well he was tutored by bobby darren wow and when wayne started out it was him and his brother oh it was him and his brother and his brother was the older brother used to kick the crap out of wayne newton all the time (laughs) and that's why you want to know why wayne newton knows karate it was to defend himself against his brother holy cow yeah and so bobby darren told wayne newton you don't need him you're really a solo you've got all of the stuff he said you should drop your brother (laughs) and that's what wayne newton did he dropped his brother of course the animosity went through the roof. You know, it's no longer a family act. Blah 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 blah. But Wayne Newton went on on his own, did his own thing, became Mr. Yeah. Vegas basically. Mm-hmm. But he got tutored by the master. Wow. Because 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 Bobby saw it. You know, he saw it in him. He says, "Oh no, you got to do this. No, you got to. You know." And that's what good directors do with actors. Actually, you know, I mean, like I've done some stuff where a guy goes, "Hey, no, don't do that." So what? what do this. Oh, and then you just take that and put it in your arsenal. <laughs> you know? Well, I know that you and Peter had uh, conversations. I listened to a couple more interviews of you and you and Peter had some uh, conversations about how to, how to play this. And it sounds like you guys really uh, collaborated a lot. Yeah. Well, the, the whole deal is for a director. And sometimes this is difficult. The, the director has to recognize when the actor is on the money. You know, some you can't let your ego as the director override a good idea because it should be a collaboration. I had a friend that worked on uh, West Wing, and he was on West Wing, and he would talk to the actor Richard, the guy with the bald head and the beard. I don't know if you remember. He was on West, West Wing, and he said, "Hey, uh, why don't you sit at the desk and do so and so so and so?" And the guy goes, "No, I'm not doing that." He said, well, what do you mean? He said, I think I should be at the door. So now my friend who is a director wants doesn't want that. He wants him sitting at the desk. Now he's got to change his deal. Okay? So they shoot it. At the so then this goes on for two days, and then he realizes the way he could get what he wants is by saying the opposite. 
Okay, so he says the opposite. He says, hey, um, I want you at the door. And, then, and the actor goes, no, I'll sit at the desk. Well, now the, guy, the director's happy. <laughs> but see, that's not my approach. My approach is when I'm working with someone, I said, I would say, do you think your character would sit at the desk or would he stand at the door? Now it's collaboration. So yeah. the actor says, well, I think I'd stand at the door. I said, then I, okay, stand at the door. Because I can move a camera anywhere. <laughs> I can put the camera wherever I want. But I, I'm worried about the performance. I want that guy to be re- really relish doing what he has to say. You know, I, I don't want him thinking, uh, you know, he's mad at me or, you know, go to, let's find out the best way to get your character to handle this situation. So, yeah, and Peter and I got into a shorthand, you know, because we're both veteran actors. We've been around a long time, so I could just, all, all I had to do was say a little bit, and he was on it. Boom, you know, or he'd say something to me. i go, oh, of course, I see it, you know. So it was good. It was a collaboration. So, so Ted, when you're, when you're working with somebody, obviously you have a, a, a high skill set for acting. Do you find that when you're directing somebody that, it's on one hand, I could see it being a, a, a real help because you can uh, guide somebody with your experience. But when you're working with somebody that is having trouble getting it, but it's something that you would get, how do you deal with that? Well, you just no, you um, you have to build the confidence in the artist because the real dictator of the whole situation is the text the script. So it's not for me to say, I want you to do to be or not to be. <laughs> it's not about that. It's about the person saying it so that truth comes out. His truth comes out of that character. So you don't have to mimic me or imitate me. I would do it, you have to know this, I would do it differently than you. I'm not asking you to do me. I'm asking you to tap into your insides and find your truth for to be or not to be. That is the question. Now, don't forget this. Hamlet has been done over 400 years, and nobody's done it the same way. You know what I mean? There are different guys that can do it different ways. So once you realize that, I'm not holding on to the way I would do it. I am looking at you and looking. I just don't want you to be lying when you say it because the audience is going to recognize a lie. Wow. I want you to find your own truth for that moment that you come up on that line to be not to be that's all i'm asking so yes i can do it my way but i'm not asking you to do it my way i'm asking you to find your own truth and do it that way and then that's gonna make because you may find something and say wow i never thought it could be done like that that's incredible now and that's the kind of stuff you say in front of the actor which builds his confidence 
Because the actor goes, shit, I kicked that shit out of that. <laughs> I can't wait to get to that scene now. <laughs> you know, I was worried about that scene because everybody knows it, you know? <laughs> but no, this guy's saying that what I'm doing is better than he's ever seen anybody, you know? So that's great. That's, that's my job as a director is not to compare and contrast the text of the character. And what I do is... I talk a lot because I want you to know my concept of the play and of the situation we're in. If I, and then I want you to be able to say, oh, I get what you're saying. If the guy can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. I get that. Then, then we're fine. You know, if the guy doesn't get it, then I have to talk some more. You know, I remember the time you uh, killed your cat? Yeah, did I tell you about it? Yeah, you told me how you killed your cat because you didn't like white pussy. <laughs> so, I, so I take that feeling and put it in there. He says, okay, let me try it. And then he does it. I go, that's it? Oh, you know? So that's, that's what we do. That's that's. And that's why, uh, you know, some people think directing is moving bodies around the stage. Some people think it's not moving bodies. It's just the getting into the emotional context. No, it's all of that. It's an art form. Directing is an art form. And as an artist, it is my job to draw out of you, the actor, all of the things that are your truth wow! and that how that relates to the character that you are portraying. So, so Ted, I, th- this is brilliant. I, I my final question, I think for me is you've been a, an actor since you was 14 years old. Yeah. And obviously have a passion for it. And what's the greater high is the high, the greater high, a, a great performance or directing a talent and having them get it. Or writing a play and hearing your words. Or, out. yeah, or, or see. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. It's Thursday night. Would you rather have chocolate cake, apple pie, alamo, or a banana split? Which would you rather have? Take a little bit of all of them, to tell you the truth. <laughs> okay. Well, that's what it is to me. Nothing better than standing on a stage and hitting it, you know, except sitting in the audience, giving a person a piece of direction, and they get it. Or listening to some lines that you have written and the truth of the situation is expressed on stage. It's all dessert. It's just, <laughs> you know, when you, go, when you go in as a director saying, okay, I'm looking for apple pie for the next four weeks. If you're on stage, you're, you're acting and saying, I'm looking for chocolate cake for the next four weeks. <laughs> and if you're writing a play, boy, banana split every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, that's how that goes. No, it's each each thing has its own intuitive uh, thing. Like some people only want to perform, and I get that. And some people can't perform, so they direct. 
you know, I got lucky. I found out that I could do, I could multitask these things. You know, I could write and direct, which I've done. I've written and directed some plays. I like to, uh, like, I just directed Fences. When COVID hit, I was directing Fences at a theater in Syracuse, New York, called the the um, Red House Theater in Syracuse, New York. Okay, Fences, August Wilson, about James Earl Jones, baseball player who couldn't make it in baseball. Oh. He's a garbage man. Oh, yeah. And um, I've seen the play a number of times, Okay. And I saw, I had some friends do it and I seen it in different theaters. You know, I saw it on Broadway with Billy D and I saw it in uh, Oregon Shakespeare. So I've seen the play a number of times, but we're doing the play and each director has their own take on it. And I'm going to tell you something. I was directing the play and I found something. I found a couple of things that I didn't see when I saw the production. But I wasn't dealing with the text. Now I got the text. I'm sitting up here, and I realize that when the baseball player says something, if you put the wife behind them, mouthing the exact same words, you show something about their relationship. Now, usually they don't do that. They just have the wife there. But if you put the wife behind them, and he's saying, well, I don't know why they do this to me. And she says, well, I don't know why they do Well, you've, you've told something about their relationship as a marriage. And if you know the play at all, at the end of the play, his best friend gets mad at him because he got another girl pregnant and she had a baby. And the wife is now helping to raise the baby. And he's put up a fence. He's finally finished the fence. And so the guy stops by to see him. And uh, they're talking over the fence. So the guy says, uh, so the baseball says, hey, why don't you uh, come in and play dominoes? And he goes, no, I'm going to go down to so-and-so's and play dominoes down there. And, da, da, da. and so what I realized in directing it is the friend never comes back into the backyard again. He stays on the other side of the fence. Oh, wow. Man, that was that was exhilarating because I found something new that no one else, I've seen the show a number of times, no one, they never discovered that that guy should not come into that yard, you know? So it's it's stuff like that when you it's like uh, uh, I did I directed a production of Twelfth Night two summers ago, and Twelfth Night is about this woman who masquerades as a boy and helps the prince of the island uh, deliver messages to the woman that he loves, and the woman falls in love with the other woman that's disguised as a boy, and there are songs Shakespearean songs in it. I tossed all the Shakespearean songs out, put it on the island of Jamaica. Who's the most popular singer on Jamaica, song, singer-songwriter? Bob Marley. Bob Marley. And so then I used nothing but Bob Marley songs. <laughs> and so she washes up on the shores of this island, 
And she's lost. She's a twin and she can't find her brother. They think her brother has drowned. And so the sea captain sings, no woman, no cry, Bob Marley. Wow. Okay. So then she delivers a message to the, to the girl that the prince loves. And there's something about her that the girl likes about this young boy. And so she sings, could this be love? So all of Marley's songs fit right into the play, wow. man. We did the hell out of that play. And I'm going to tell you <laughs> how I know it was good. It's because Fred Grandy, who played Gopher, sure. came and saw it. And he awesome. don't like giving out no compliments <laughs> to me. <laughs> and he had done Twelfth Night. He had done Twelfth Night. He wow. said, Ted, this is one of the best productions I ever saw. Oh, you man. know? And that that's the beauty of being the director is is coming up with a concept, finding a concept, and seeing if it'll fit without hurting the play with still bringing out the essence of the play. And I have to tell you, we did it. I did it at the North Carolina Black Theater Festival in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And so black people came to see it. Okay, black people came to see it. And so they're there and they're watching Shakespeare's iambic pentameter. And so black people go like this. They go, I had enough of this. And they stand up to leave. Okay. They get in. They say, let's go. Stand up to leave. A Bob Marley song. Come on. And they go, okay, well, I'll, I'll watch this much. And then, so we go home to play. And they go, oh, no, no, I'm tired of this. And then just get ready to go. Bob Marley, come back on. Oh, okay. Well, and then by about the third song, nobody wanted to leave. That's good. <laughs> I held those suckers, man. <laughs> You're making me wish I'd have seen it. Man, that sounds oh, awesome. Man, I'm telling you, you should have seen it. I wish I could have filmed it. Jeez. It was so good. We got rave reviews. You have to know your audience. And I was doing directing it to a black audience. We we're in Winston-Salem. Again, I was telling you earlier how I never try to approach Shakespeare in a traditional sense. I sure. always try to find a little something on it. And the uh, the newspaper there acknowledged that we had hit a home run, you know, nice. because they got it. They saw what we were doing. They saw it work, you know. So that, yeah, that's got to be a blast to to rethink those things and 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 see that in there, and then watch the people react to what you put yeah. out there. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You're slated to be in a movie. I don't know if it's shot or anything like that. It's called WRZ. White racist zombies. Oh, <laughs> yes. No, that's a TV thing. Oh, that's it's a TV. A, uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's a series. Oh, cool. It's a series. And uh, you know who's, who created it was Wayne Brady. You know who Wayne Brady I is? seen Wade was, Wayne was attached to that. Yeah, it's his idea. That's crazy. It's his idea. That's what happens when he hangs out with Chappelle. He has these yeah, crazy ideas. Right. <laughs> yeah. We filmed the pilot. He put me in it because Wayne Brady's partner is uh, Jonathan Mangum. Sure. Now, Jonathan is the announcer on Let's Make a Deal. They're like childhood friends. Cool. Okay. Jonathan's wife is friends with my friend Jill Whelan. And Jill Whelan was Vicky on uh, Love Boat. Oh, cool. Okay. And uh, they're both, you know women with children now, you know, sure. but so I did a pilot for Jill called take it from the top. And that's on YouTube. And Leah Mangum 
And Jill Whelan wrote that pilot. I directed it. They put it up on YouTube, and that was a series. So I met Jonathan, and Jonathan said, hey, Wayne and I have this idea. Would you be interested in it? And so they gave me the script, of course, yes. Da, 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 da. And we shot the pilot, but they're trying to sell the pilot now. We're waiting to see, because they got about 20 episodes they want to do oh, wow. with that. You know, it's like Walking Dead. Only it's, uh, you know, a different deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Well, that that sounds very interesting. Um, so you you keep busy, and that's awesome. Uh, I have to say, I think we've uh, taken up your time tonight, and I really appreciate it. Told you it was going to be about an hour. Don't want to yeah. overstay our welcome, but I do want to say everybody needs to go to... Help me out, Ted. Oh, AmericanStage.org, Satchmo at the Waldorf. Satchmo at the Waldorf. That's going to be running till Sunday, March 7th, so check it out. And I know check this... Check it out. It's fun. You'll, 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 you'll be entertained and you'll be educated. I'll take can't both. Can't better than that. Yeah, you yeah. can't better than that. Yeah. I, I really... Patrick, this has been delightful. Norbert. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Ted. This hey. has been an awesome conversation. It's been so yeah, great. Yeah. Hey, All you right. have a good night. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank, Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for hanging out with us on the True Fiction Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please visit us at Facebook. You can also leave us a review on iTunes or through your favorite podcast app. Until next time, stay true and stay creative. You're too late Catch a ride somewhere else Catch a ride Catch a ride somewhere else